0: Hi, ParCast listeners, I'm Carter.
1: And I'm Molly. Welcome back to Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies.
0: For this event, ParCast is investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet and telling those stories. Because climate change affects all parts of society, including crimes and conspiracies.
1: If you're enjoying our Earth Day episodes and would like to learn more or take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources.
0: Due to the nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of nuclear contamination, car crashes, and violence. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen.
1: Washington, D.C. Winter, 1977. A 32-year-old lawyer named Daniel Sheehan sprinted across the room to grab his
0: phone. Before he had a chance to say anything, the unfamiliar voice on the other end asked if he could attend, quote, a beer and pretzels party.
1: Sheehan grinned, but not because he was thrilled about beer or pretzels. It was code for a top-secret meeting he was expecting, and... It was on.
0: When he arrived at the designated meeting spot, two men whisked him inside and asked if he'd been followed. Sheehan shook his head. Not that he knew of, but he wasn't a professional spy.
1: The men chuckled, that was
0: for sure. They demanded to know what he
1: was involved in. What could have attracted attention from the intelligence community?
0: Sheehan explained he was an attorney for Karen Silkwood's father, He helped him file a civil suit against Karen's employer, Kerr McGee Nuclear Corporation. He and his private investigator were just following all the leads.
1: The men's expressions turned grim. They told him he was in over his head and needed to pull his P.I. off the case immediately.
0: Daniel pushed back and explained that he was interested in doing the right thing.
1: The men sighed. Daniel wasn't getting it. If he didn't pull his P.I. now, he'd be killed, and nobody would investigate. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg.
0: And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open minded, skeptical, and curious. Now, well, don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth.
1: But sometimes it's not.
0: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: This is our second episode on Karen Silkwood a nuclear lab technician who was exposed to deadly amounts of plutonium at her job. While trying to improve safety conditions, she allegedly uncovered proof of falsified reports at her company. And when she went to hand those documents over to a New York Times reporter, she died in a car crash that some viewed with suspicion.
0: Last time, we chronicled Karen's complicated life From leaving her family in Texas to her job at Kerr-McGee's nuclear plant. This time, we're decontaminating three conspiracy theories that cling to Karen's story like radioactive dust.
1: Like the idea that Karen intentionally contaminated herself to turn the heat on Kerr-McGee. Or that Karen was run off the road and killed by another car.
0: And finally, the granddaddy of all Silkwood theories, that Karen was assassinated because she stumbled upon a covert plutonium smuggling ring, and the U.S. government may have been involved.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, visit BetterHelp.com/conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel conspiracy
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy. Taught to service men for their secrets, and sometimes, their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For.
0: Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Following Karen Silkwood's car crash in 1974, one big question lingered who was going to fill her boots and avenge her death.
1: Many demanded justice for Karen, like her family, her union, even some in the US Congress. But there was one individual who rode into town, guns blazing, attorney Daniel Sheehan.
0: Much like Karen, Sheehan didn't look like a cowboy. He was from the East Coast, raised by a lawman in upstate New York, and he went to Harvard Law School meaning he understood justice inside and out.
1: And he wasn't afraid of a standoff with Kerr McGee. As we learned last week, Sheehan filed a civil lawsuit on behalf of Karen's dad against Kerr McGee Nuclear Corporation. He claimed they were negligent in how they safeguarded plutonium, which directly caused Karen's contamination.
0: But Kerr McGee fired back. Specifically, taking aim at Karen's reputation.
1: During the opening statements of the civil trial, Bill Paul, one of Kerr-McGee's attorneys, contended Karen had, quote, motive and intent to
0: contaminate herself. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. That Karen Silkwood allegedly exposed herself to plutonium. According to Bill Paul, Karen
1: had two reasons to do it. One, to embarrass Kerr McGee, and two, to dramatize her allegations of safety issues at the plant.
0: Well, let's take a second to unpack that. Kerr McGee's attorney speculated Karen deliberately poisoned herself with a deadly substance to thumb her nose at her employer and shine a light on worker safety.
1: That's a pretty wild accusation. But there were apparently suspicions as far back as Karen's first contamination on July thirty-first, nineteen seventy-four.
0: For much of this backstory, we're going to rely heavily on the reporting from one important source: Richard Rashke's book, *The Killing of Karen Silkwood: The Story Behind the Kerr-McGee Plutonium Case*.
1: Rashke interviewed numerous people from the case. He filtered through thousands of pages of court transcripts and FBI files we don't have access to. And believe us, the FBI is an important piece of this puzzle.
0: So let's dial back the clock to the early morning hours of August 1st, 1974, the morning after Karen's first exposure to deadly plutonium.
1: The investigation was led by kerr Health Safety Director, Wayne Norwood. The first strange development Norwood allegedly noticed was a weird pattern of plutonium on the lab's air filter.
0: The radioactive material wasn't spread uniformly across the surface. Like you'd imagine if there was a leak and something was floating in the air. It was isolated to one spot. To Norwood, it looked like a thumbprint.
1: Was it Karen's or someone else's? At the time, Norwood likely didn't have a reason to doubt Karen. She was just a diligent lab worker, not a union leader. Yet, she probably wasn't on anyone's radar.
0: But according to information in Rashke's book, Norwood had seen intentional contaminations at the facility before, or so he believed.
1: Two years earlier, in 1972, Norwood allegedly encountered other questionable air filters. According to him, these had strange patterns too, but they weren't shaped like a fingerprint.
0: These had an X, which radioactive substances can't make by just floating through the air. It was as if someone had drawn it on the filters with a cotton swab.
1: Again, there was no proof of that, And we don't know if Norwood raised the issue with facility management or the Atomic Energy Commission, but it probably made Norwood skeptical of most contaminations, especially ones with mysterious circumstances like Karen's.
0: And his suspicions seemed confirmed when Karen was exposed again just a few months later in November 1974.
1: But as we learned in Part 1, it wasn't just once It happened for three consecutive days. Each time, she was decontaminated and asked to submit routine urine and fecal tests to determine the extent of her exposure.
0: And each day, her contamination seemed to get worse and worse. For Norwood, it was puzzling for multiple reasons.
1: First, some of Karen's urine samples contained insoluble plutonium, basically a form that will not pass through the body, meaning that it couldn't have been excreted in her urine.
0: In other words, someone spiked her urine sample with plutonium, someone who likely didn't know enough about soluble and insoluble forms of the substance. Did that mean it was Karen or someone else?
1: That was one of the big questions investigators tried to determine with no luck. However, Kerr-McGee was able to trace the plutonium that contaminated Karen back to a specific batch of fuel pellets at the plant.
0: Think of it like a DNA test. Each group of pellets had a slightly different chemical signature. The plutonium that contaminated Karen came from Pellet Lot 29.
1: That may seem like good news. If they knew where it came from, shouldn't that lead to a group of suspects? Nope. Instead, it actually got more complicated.
0: First, Karen never worked directly with Pellet Lot 29, which might seem like a good alibi. Well, maybe she was off the hook.
1: But according to later court testimony from Kerr-McGee lab supervisor James Smith, Karen could have left the plant with plutonium since the security was so lackluster. When he first joined the plant, he told the court there was zero security not even a fence. And when Kerr-McGee was asked in court about evidence related to the security of its plutonium, they didn't appear to deny the concerns outright. Rather, they argued it was irrelevant to the
0: issues in the case. However, Smith wasn't the only one implying security conditions at the facility were lax. In Rashke's book, there was another anecdote about a worker who stole a radioactive fuel pellet so his son could take it to school, which must've made for a memorable show and tell. But the bottom line was, it sounded like anyone could steal from Kerr McGee.
1: But that wasn't the craziest part of Pellet Law 29. According to Kerr McGee and the AEC, that batch of pellets left the plant three months before Karen's contamination.
0: There was a tiny sample locked in a vault at Kermagee, but according to Raschke's book, no one checked to see if it was intact. We don't know why.
1: So what does this all mean? Well, it likely signifies whoever contaminated Karen, either her or someone else, planned it three months in advance or had access to the Kermagee vault.
0: There's another suspicious detail about Karen's contamination. On the third day of her exposure, she called her roommate, Sherry, to warn her the apartment might be inspected for contamination. During the conversation, Karen allegedly gave some very peculiar instructions.
1: According to Rashke's reporting, Karen instructed her to specifically avoid the kitchen and bathroom, the two places that ended up being the most contaminated.
0: But the call happened before anyone knew the hot spots. Could Karen have known because she did it? Or was it just an educated guess based on where she'd been in the house?
1: Either way, that detail made people wonder if Karen knew more than she was letting on.
0: Even Drew Stevens, Karen's on-again, off-again boyfriend was suspicious. According to Rashke's book, Drew asked Karen point-blank if she'd eaten plutonium.
1: She categorically denied it. And apparently, Drew later felt terrible for asking. But it speaks volumes about the doubts and curiosities many had about the case.
0: And yet, one person who refused to believe Karen contaminated herself was Dr. Dean Abramson. He was a nuclear scientist and professor who knew of her fears of contamination.
1: Soon after her death, Dr. Abramson told ABC News, I wouldn't ever have thought, nor do I now think, that she had contaminated herself purposely. And I tend to agree. I think this conspiracy theory, that Karen deliberately exposed herself, was just a diversion tactic from the truth. Not only were these accusations totally wild, they required big, logical leaps. With what Karen knew about plutonium's dangers... I can't imagine her signing her own death warrant like that.
0: She may not have knowingly done it, but there are a lot of coincidences. There was her heads-up call to the roommate, the spiked urine, and of course she had access to the pellet. It's not completely impossible.
1: But anyone had access to that plutonium. And frankly, some had much stronger motives to poison her.
0: Which is why I find it more likely that someone was trying to kill Karen. Because after the plutonium didn't work, many think she was run off the road and possibly murdered.
1: Coming up, reports of a mysterious second car after the crash.
0: Hi listeners, we hope you're enjoying our Earth Day special. Here's a reminder that you can find more of Dark Green Earth Crimes and Conspiracies on other Parcast series all month long. So far, a standout for me has been the episodes from serial killers on the unicorn killer, Ira Einhorn. So fascinating to follow his evolution from Earth Day advocate to convicted murderer. Check out these episodes and more across all of ParCast all month long. And if you'd like to take action on the climate or learn more about the topics covered in dark green earth crimes and conspiracies, visit Spotify.com slash dark green resources.
1: Now, back to our story.
0: Karen Silkwood's fateful 1974 car crash seemed to be an open and shut case for the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. After a brief initial investigation, they concluded Karen fell asleep at the wheel, possibly due to the presence of sleeping pills in her system.
1: But for Karen's friends, family, and co workers, that didn't sit right. She was on her way to meet a reporter for the New York Times. That night, friends described her as alert and excited for the sit-down. She was thumbing through her files in anticipation.
0: Not to mention, Karen was considered more than just a good driver. She was even an amateur off-road racer.
1: But about seven miles outside of Crescent, Oklahoma, Karen's car veered left across the highway into the oncoming lane, all the way to the grassy sloped shoulder on the other side. She drove about 240 feet parallel to the highway, then crashed head-on into a concrete culvert, and her files were never found.
0: Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. That Karen Silkwood didn't fall asleep. There was another car that ran her off the road.
1: Put yourself in Karen's shoes for a second. You have a file full of allegedly incriminating information on your employer. You're on your way to meet a famous reporter. Would you be sleepy? Drowsy?
0: Well, if you ask some of Karen's fellow union members, they'd say no. Which is why they hired a crash expert named A.O. Pipkin to dig deeper. Pipkin concluded that Karen's accident could have gone differently from how the Oklahoma Highway Patrol claimed... And he pointed to a couple pieces of evidence.
1: First, her steering wheel had collapsed exactly where an alert driver would be holding it, at the three o'clock and nine o'clock positions.
0: Second, he claimed when drivers fell asleep at the wheel, their cars veered to the right, not left. Roads are generally sloped that way, so rain will run off. Pipkin argued Karen had to steer left to cross the highway.
1: Third, and perhaps even more compelling, once the car was on the grassy shoulder, it still drove parallel to the road, which would require force. If Karen had been asleep at the wheel, the car would have angled off the shoulder into farmland.
0: A.O. Pipkin wasn't the only one to think this. In the 1970s, ABC had a news program called The Reasoner Report. After the Silkwood crash, they sent a team of reporters and experts to Oklahoma.
1: Using a similar Honda Civic to Karen's, they performed tests at the exact location of her crash.
0: They determined if someone were unconscious, the car would have responded exactly how Pipkin described. The Reasoner report corroborated his theory that Karen had to have been awake.
1: But that wasn't the only puzzle about the car crash. If you remember from part one, there were also mysterious dents on the
0: bumper and left side of the car. According to Oklahoma Highway Patrol, they happened when Karen's vehicle was pulled out of the culvert after the crash, likely impacting the concrete.
1: But Pipkin tested the bumper for scratches and concrete residue, both of which came back negative. To him, it indicated her car was likely hit from behind.
0: Pipkin stopped short of calling it murder, but others would later, piecing it together in an ugly scenario. It went something like this.
1: Somewhere along the dark highway, a car caught up to Karen. Maybe the other driver flashed their headlights at her to stop, or maybe they raced alongside her. Either way, they wanted her to pull over so they could persuade her from talking to the New York Times.
0: Karen was likely scared. No one wants a strange car flagging them down, especially on a desolate stretch of road. Karen might have tried to outrun them.
1: That's when the second car, intentionally or not, crashed into her bumper and left rear, maybe even trying to nudge her off the road.
0: Karen veered all the way across the highway onto the other side's shoulder, She fought to get back on the road, but perhaps the other car was blocking her. And since she was focused on the other vehicle, maybe she didn't see the concrete culvert headed her way, which is why she never hit the brakes.
1: By then, it was too late. Her car went airborne. She braced for impact, her hands gripping the steering wheel tightly. So when she crashed, the wheel deformed in the three o'clock and nine o'clock positions, exactly as Pipkin described.
0: The assailant's car likely circled back and snatched Karen's papers before anyone arrived on the scene.
1: Of course, that's all speculation, or at least educated speculation. Sadly, there will probably never be a satisfying conclusion to this one, unless some miracle happened.
0: Believe it or not, there might be one out there, a name hiding in the strangest of places, buried in top secret files belonging to the FBI.
1: For this one, let's jump ahead to the spring of 1976, when attorney Daniel Sheehan filed his civil suit against Kerr McGee on behalf of Karen's
0: family. One of Sheehan's first steps in a big case like this was to hire a private investigator. And his go-to guy was a former U.S. Marine named Bill Taylor.
1: See, Taylor was a well-connected PI. He once worked for the legendary attorney, Effley Bailey, and had connections in the FBI, CIA, and NSA. So when Sheehan hired him for the Silkwood case, one of Taylor's first calls was to a source within the Bureau.
0: According to Rashke’s book, Taylor’s informant told him, quote, "The Silkwood case is a doozy. The bureau is covering so much shit on Karen Silkwood, you wouldn’t believe me."
1: When Taylor demanded to know more, his source supposedly peeked into the secret files and told him what he found. According to Taylor, it went something like this.
0: That night, a car followed Karen Silkwood from the Hub Cafe, and Karen seemed to know they were on her tail because at one point, she turned off Highway 74 onto a narrow dirt road to try and lose them. The
1: chase vehicle eventually turned down the same path, hunting for Karen. They encountered her after she had already turned around, heading back to Highway 74.
0: The pursuing car tried to stop her on the dirt road, but she sped around it. Then the vehicle swung around to follow her. When Karen reached Highway 74, she slammed on her brakes. The car behind couldn't stop in time, impacting her bumper and left side.
1: The chase continued out onto the highway, where Karen drove onto the grassy left shoulder. The other car came alongside her, trying to flag her down.
0: And that was where Taylor's source stopped. Supposedly, they were too scared to read any more.
1: It was also unclear whether the FBI was the chase car or if it was someone else.
0: Either way, according to one source, someone followed Silkwood and they either saw how she died or killed her.
1: Keep in mind, though, this was an unconfirmed source. Bill Taylor never named his bureau snitch, and this file was never proven to exist. Plus, the FBI has never released an account that lines up with the details of this chase.
0: But if the FBI did have eyes on Karen, why? Well, the simplest explanation was she was a union leader.
1: It's a well-known fact that the Bureau kept tabs on labor organizers from Cesar Chavez, the founder of the United Farm Workers, to John Lewis, the president of the United Mine Workers of America.
0: So it is possible they were keeping tabs on Karen for her work with the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, or the OCAW.
1: But she wasn't a national leader. She'd only been elected to the bargaining committee three months before she died. The FBI likely wouldn't place 24-hour surveillance on Karen for that.
0: Whether or not they were tailing her because of the union doesn't matter. What does matter is that they might have a file claiming someone ran her off the road, which for me confirms conspiracy theory number two, that Karen didn't fall asleep, she was attacked.
1: This one is sketchy at best. Sure, the dents in her bumper are suspicious, but there's no debating she had sleeping pills in her system. Besides, every conspiracy theorist seems to have an unnamed source in the FBI. It feels far-fetched that the bureau followed her just because she had files about safety issues.
0: But they would if she stumbled onto something big at kerr like say, missing plutonium, and international smugglers. Coming
1: up, important players in the Silkwood case also end up dead.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A thousand miles from Kerr McGee in Crescent, Oklahoma is another small town called Apollo, Pennsylvania.
1: Much like Crescent, Apollo had a population of about 1,500, and for a long time, it was a farming town. Until a new employer moved in with a fancy new product, uranium and plutonium.
0: This one wasn't run by Kerr-McGee. It was another company called Nuclear Materials and Equipment Company, or NUMEC. Starting in the late 1950s, NUMEC manufactured uranium and plutonium for nuclear reactors.
1: According to
0: the Atomic Energy Commission, in 1965,
1: a routine government inspection discovered Numec's facility was missing uranium. After multiple government investigations that turned up empty-handed, Numec's founder Zalman Shapiro defended himself, saying he never diverted a single microgram of nuclear material to Israel or anyone else and does not believe that anyone else did so at the plant. But this wasn't an isolated case. Just a few years later, Kerr-McGee allegedly suffered a similar fate, this time with missing plutonium.
0: This brings us to conspiracy theory number three. Karen was killed because she uncovered a plutonium smuggling ring out of Kerr-McGee.
1: Before we go back to Karen, let's discuss NUMEC for a second.
0: Initially, the US government didn't know how much uranium was missing from the facility, but after a lengthy investigation, it was revealed the plant had no accounting for more than 200 pounds. That's enough to make more than 20 atomic bombs.
1: Over the next several years, Apollo was searched and probed by nearly every government agency you can think of. The FBI, the CIA, Justice Department, the list goes on.
0: But no one could figure out exactly where the uranium had gone. The company contended it was likely lost during the refinement process, that bits of uranium were naturally removed, sometimes disposed of as waste. NUMEC paid a fine for the missing material, but later disputed the AEC calculations. They maintained that the unexplained missing uranium could be attributed to processing losses. Or that the trace uranium escaped through the facility's air ducts, cement, and wastewater over time.
1: And yet, some investigators had another theory the uranium was diverted. In other words, stolen.
0: According to them, it wasn't taken by employees for their kid show and tell. This time, it was possibly shipped to other countries to help them develop nuclear weapons. In the case of Numek, there was one main suspect, Israel.
1: In the years after World War II, nations were in a race to develop nuclear weapons, not just the U.S. and Soviet Union, but also France, India, Pakistan, and Israel.
0: As it had been for a long time, the Middle East was experiencing a lot of unrest at the time, and Israel wanted to arm itself against its adversaries, The ultimate weapon was nuclear.
1: Which could take years of development and lots of money. For Scope, the Manhattan Project, which developed the U.S.'s atomic bomb, cost $39 billion.
0: But if a country wanted to bypass all those issues, they could steal someone else's materials.
1: Which is what some experts say happened at NUMEC, Perhaps Israel stole it themselves. Perhaps it was facilitated by Numex management. Others think the CIA may have helped them.
0: In fairness, Israel was an American ally, and it may have been in the American government's best interest to slip them bomb-making materials so they could counter the Soviet Union's Middle Eastern partners, Egypt and Syria.
1: Either way, there was no hard evidence for decades of where the Numec uranium had gone. But in 2015, the CIA declassified some documents that appeared to shed some light.
0: According to those reports, in 1968, the agency discovered American uranium at an Israeli nuclear weapons facility. It stopped short of saying it was from NUMEC, but many felt that was the implication.
1: Implications aside, let's not forget that Dr. Shapiro claimed they never diverted material to Israel or anyone else outside the plant. At the time, the Israeli embassy also denied that the country had smuggled, hijacked, or secretly purchased enriched uranium, quote, either in the United States or anywhere else in the world.
0: So whether Israeli special agents acted alone or with permission from the CIA, we may never know. But either way, the whole story seemed to show radioactive material was stolen or diverted from a plant in Pennsylvania to a foreign government, which begs the question, if it happened at NUMEC, why not Kerr-McGee?
1: Of course, during the Karen Silkwood trial, executives from Kerr-McGee denied there was any missing plutonium. According to them, it was somewhere in the facility.
0: But what if the NUMEC ring felt the heat in Pennsylvania and decided to go west to Oklahoma? As we learned earlier, Kermagee employees testified that security at Kermagee's Cimarron plants was far from airtight. There was just one small problem they didn't anticipate. Karen Silkwood.
1: Remember, around the fall of 1974, Karen allegedly discovered the Kermagee plant was missing 40 pounds of plutonium. This was even corroborated by James Smith, the Kermagee plant manager we mentioned earlier.
0: 40 pounds wasn't on the scale of NUMEC, but it was enough to make three bombs, which could kill millions of people.
1: If it had been smuggled and Karen discovered it, that would certainly make her a target
0: rest assured though we're not just basing this theory on missing plutonium well there's a big jump in logic from that to an international smuggling ring
1: we'll be the first to admit there's no smoking gun for this theory
0: there was however suspicious involvement of the us government which likely wouldn't have happened if this was just a simple plutonium contamination and car crash So we're going to follow a couple of seemingly unrelated threads that may lead back to the same place. Karen stumbling onto a covert smuggling ring.
1: And our first stop is back at the law office of attorney Daniel Sheehan, who filed the Silkwood civil suit.
0: In the winter of 1977, while Sheehan and his P.I. Bill Taylor were chasing down every lead surrounding Karen's death, as the story goes... Sheehan got a call from one of Karen's union associates, a national rep named Tony Matsoki.
1: One day, when Tony and his wife were moving out of their house, they found an electronic bug. Someone was eavesdropping on his kitchen conversations, perhaps even the extensive calls he had with Karen Silkwood.
0: Sheehan took the listening device to a retired CIA buddy. His friend took one look at the bug and knew where it came from the National Security Agency.
1: The NSA was arguably the most secretive intelligence group in the country. And knowing that, Sheehan's CIA buddy made a call to find out why they were involved.
0: That was what led to Sheehan's top secret beer and pretzels meeting we described earlier. And to the moment where the mysterious source urged Sheehan to pull Bill Taylor off the case or he'd end up dead.
1: This entity refused to tell Sheehan who was involved in the case, or if it had to do with a covert smuggling operation. But it had to be a pretty serious issue to involve such secrecy.
0: After the meeting, Sheehan did tell Taylor to stand down temporarily, but eventually they decided they were just being paranoid. There was no way the Silkwood case was as big as people claimed.
1: But then, one evening, according to Rashke's interview with Taylor, while he was investigating the Silkwood case in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, he was attacked by two people in his motel room. He fought them off, even stabbing one of the men.
0: When Taylor checked local hospitals, there was no record of any stabbings. He suspected the men must have been foreign spies. Maybe the warning was legit and Karen Silkwood had stumbled onto something big.
1: And Bill Taylor wasn't the only person who was targeted. Some other potentially important players seemed to end up suspiciously dead too.
0: One was a man named Leo Goodwin Jr. Goodwin happened to be the son of the founder of Geico Insurance.
1: Along with another man, Jack Holcomb, Goodwin started his own company, called Audio Intelligence Devices, or AID, which manufactured wiretaps and bugs, and they allegedly trained people, including law enforcement, on how to use them.
0: Taylor suspected Goodwin might have had information on how AID devices ended up in the hands of whoever tapped Matsuki. The company would later deny any suspicions of this nature.
1: In January 1978, Goodwin agreed to meet with Bill Taylor to discuss his operations, except two days before their scheduled appointment, Goodwin died.
0: When Taylor tried to obtain the death certificate, he was stonewalled. When he did finally get his hands on it, he thought the document looked suspicious. It cited unnamed doctors who concluded Goodwin had died from both congestive heart failure and prostate cancer.
1: To be fair, Goodwin had been treated for cancer, but according to Taylor, the man seemed healthy when he was gardening a couple of days before.
0: To Taylor, it was another strange coincidence that seemed to point to one thing. Karen Silkwood was wrapped up in a massive conspiracy.
1: Leo Goodwin wasn't the only strange death. Later, in March 1978, Dan Sheehan won a preliminary court battle during the civil suit. The judge granted him approval to subpoena a high-ranking official in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations, Oklahoma's equivalent of the FBI.
0: The OSBI official was a man named Thomas Bunting, a supervisor in their criminal conspiracies unit. And according to Bunting's wife, he was a wiretapping expert. Sheehan thought Bunting might know something about Karen's case. But three days after the announcement of the subpoena, Bunting was dead.
1: According to reports, he stumbled into his brother's home, collapsed, and died. Bunting was only 44 years old and was never diagnosed with a heart condition. And yet, it was attributed to a heart attack. This time, there was no autopsy. Rashke quoted Bunting's wife as saying, quote, "'What's the point?'
0: The point Sue Bunting might not have realized was her husband could have known something about Silkwood's case. Perhaps he knew who had wiretapped Matsoki's home and that person, or persons, didn't want the leak.
1: We may never know for sure whether Taylor, Bunting, Goodwin, and the others were attacked or killed because of the Silkwood case. But it's hard to deny there was a lot more to the official story.
0: It seemed like the whole case was radioactive. Whoever touched it was contaminated, and some ended up dead. Which makes me think this conspiracy theory, that Karen was killed after she stumbled onto a plutonium smuggling ring, is legit. Sure, we don't have the receipts to connect all the leads, but it adds up to one thing. She discovered something big and she paid for it with her life.
1: But like you said, we don't have the receipts for any of it. Karen was one woman. Was she really so much of a threat that a major government agency needed to get rid of her? The Numex scandal happened 10 years before. Besides, killing Karen seems like a bigger risk and brought way more attention to the case than letting her go.
0: Well, if someone did kill Karen, whether that was because of her labor organizing, her push for safety measures, or because she uncovered smugglers, they greatly underestimated her voice and legacy.
1: That's true. One of the first positive results came in 1974. Congress shut down the Atomic Energy Commission and replaced it with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which still exists today. It may have been largely symbolic, but it signaled a change in leadership and messaging.
0: Instead of cheerleading unbridled nuclear power, the commission focused on safe production. They realized that nuclear power itself wasn't evil. It was the mismanagement of its plants, mines, and waste storage. If those could be controlled, then it could help cut down on greenhouse gas emissions.
1: On top of that, Karen became a hero for women's rights. She stood up to a billion-dollar corporation run by men. Karen not only inspired women around the world, she inspired generations of environmental activists and
0: whistleblowers. Karen's story was so powerful that in 1983, it was made into a Hollywood film called Silkwood. Playing Karen was none other than Meryl Streep. The movie was nominated for five Academy Awards. It didn't take home any Oscars, but it won over critics and audiences nationwide.
1: But unlike a tidy Hollywood ending, Karen's legacy isn't so simple. There's still work to be
0: done. Kermagee is no longer the powerhouse it once was. The company was acquired in 2006 by a larger petroleum company, the empty Cimarron plant is still in the middle of cleanup plans to remove nuclear contamination in the area's soil and groundwater. If anything, it's a constant reminder that could inspire a new generation of environmentalists to take up Karen's mission.
1: She accomplished what she did without the help of the internet, cell phones, or social media. We can't help but wonder what Karen would have done today.
0: And now, knowing all of this, What will you do?
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, brought to you by Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Be sure to check out our other shows, Unsolved Murders, Solved Murders, and Serial Killers.
0: You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify every Monday and Wednesday. For more information on Karen Silkwood, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Rashke's book, The Killing of Karen Silkwood, the story behind the Kerr-McGee plutonium case, extremely helpful to our research. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash dark resources.
1: Until next time, remember the truth isn't always the best story,
0: and the official story isn't always the truth.
1: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParkCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Adam De Silva, edited by Mallory Cara and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg.